What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the Mastermind Podcast. And today we got our special guest, Taylor, here with us. And we're here to learn from Taylor about his journey to becoming an outstanding investor. Would you like to inv- introduce yourself to the people? Yeah, thanks so much, Braden. Glad to be here. I'm excited. Uh, yeah, so I... Um... My background goes back to Wall Street, right? So I spent a decade running around Wall Street and my role there was called an advisor consultant. So what I did was went out and worked with the largest financial advisors around the country and worked with them on getting their wealthiest clients perfectly allocated across the different asset classes in the market. Amazing. And what got you started to get involved in the Wall Street industry? Yeah. So I went to school for finance, right? So that's the start. I did both an undergrad and a grad degree. And I've always been kind of a numbers nerd, man. Like, you know, I I grew up in a household. My mother was a statistics professor and investing is all about statistics, looking at the numbers, breaking them down and trying to ascertain where things are going moving forward. Amazing. Amazing. And can you say your mother really got you started with investing in the stocks? Like what got you started in investing? No, my mother is an (laughs) an idiot when it comes to investing. She has no idea what she's doing and just leans on us and says, Hey, do whatever I need to do for me. (laughs) But she's a, she's a smart mind, obviously as a statistics professor. Um, now, you know what? I've always been, um, obsessed with money, good, bad, or indifferent. Honestly, I, I, that's the truth. Um, my wife tells me all the time, I'm still obsessed with money. Um, and it's not necessarily that I want to be the richest person in the world by any stretch of the imagination. That's not at all my goals, but I want to be comfortable and, uh, investing is a way to keep yourself comfortable over time, especially in an environment like we've faced with right now, when inflation is, is, is eating away at people's savings. You have to be able to invest to offset inflation in the market that we've currently face. You're hundred percent right. And with you saying that, like, how do you handle volatile markets? Like what strategies do you employ during these times? Diversification, my man, that is the name mm. of the game. So, you know, when you look at rich people, rich people, wealthy people, I guess I'll call them, um, wealthy people diversify. So wealthy people realize that compound interest over time is how you make money. And so they look at it and say, Hey, if I can get a diversified asset allocation, that includes stocks, bonds, commodities, real estate, all of that in their portfolios, this is going to allow me to be an all-weather tire, not get crushed in down markets where stocks get hammered because bonds hold up really well there as an offset. And they say, listen, if I can grind out 6 7 8% returns over the next 30 years, I'm going to be rich. And bad investors, on the other hand, look at it and say, hey, I'm going to hit a home run today. Right. Mm. And so that's what happened in spades in 2022. So 2021, you had this massive bull market and everyone said, Hey, I'm the greatest stock picker in the world. I'm going to go out and pick some high flying tech stock or cryptocurrency or whatever it is and Mm. kill it because all my friends are already doing this and they're telling me you're late to the ball game. So I got to get involved. So they make a real concentrated bet on something that could potentially go to the moon. And guess what happened in 2022? The tide turned and people got caught with their pants down. And what do they do? They sell at that point. And they're probably selling at the wrong time. But historically, what you see from retail investors is they buy the highs and sell the lows. And that's a function of them not understanding how to diversify a portfolio as a whole and create that smoother pattern, not as much bouncing around, more that slow and steady growth pattern, which is what you're looking for as a successful investor over time. Amazing. And, you know, is that the number one advice you would give to new traders and new investors coming into the market? Yeah, I want to throw the trader comment right in the garbage, to be honest with you. Mm. I don't think trading stocks works. Um, Very, very few have done it successfully. Warren Buffett's the greatest investor of all time, right? His, His famous comment is, 
if you're not willing to own a stock for 10 years, don't even own it for 10 minutes. I because love it. It, it. It's something where, again, you might pick it right three or four times in a row. And if you do, God bless you. And then you're going to get more aggressive and say, hey, I can time the market. Guess how many members there are of the Stock Market Timing Hall of Fame? I, I couldn't even tell you. <laughs> Zero, my man. Zero. There are no Jeez. good stock market timers. That is a famous Wall Street comment. There are zero mm. people in the Stock Market Timing Hall of Fame. And so with that, don't try to, don't try to time it. Right, you know, mm. dollar cost averaging. Are you familiar with that term, Braden? Yeah, yeah. So, so if you have, you say you have a hundred dollars, break it into five chunks. Put twenty dollars to work today. Next month, the exact same day, put it to work. Next month, the exact same day until all five pieces are to work in the market. That takes your timing out of the game. If the market goes up, at least you've got some money at the beginning of the market. But if your market comes you know, comes crashing down, you're happy you didn't put all of it to work. And again, it takes that timing risk out of the game. Right. And I love that you said that about trading for the long term because or you know, having investing stocks in the long term. Sorry, sorry. (laughs) You know, you know, my generation, we always talk about trading in the social media world. They're always talking about, oh, you know, make a trade, make these trades, you know, short term, short term. Nobody talks about the long term. So like, could you give some reasons why we should invest in the long term instead of the short term? Yeah, again, short term. So what happens when you when you get short term focused is you end up focusing on things that have done well. It's called recency bias. And Mm. that is hardwired into our brain. What has happened just recently is going to continue to happen in the future. And as we know, the investment world is 100% diabolically the opposite of that. So it was what you call reversion back to the mean. So this goes back to my mother's statistics class. Reversion back to the mean means as things happen over time, they come back to some sort of normalcy. So what's done really, really well recently, likely that pendulum will swing back towards the other end. And there's another big word that I recently learned that's that's uh, really indicative of what happens in the stock market. It's called enantiodromia. So enantiodromia mm. isn't necessarily a stock market word, but it fits it perfectly. Enantiodromia means things have a tendency to swing towards extremes. So if you think about a pendulum, it swings too far in one direction and then it overcorrects coming back mm-hmm. in the other direction too far. So like let's take mm-hmm. Bitcoin as an example. Bitcoin is a, a very volatile asset, right? So Bitcoin ran up to $68,789 with its peak point in late 2021. And realistically, that was probably very, very overvalued at that point. And it, it's tough to ascertain what the value of Bitcoin as a whole is. But at the, it, regardless, it was probably very overbought at that point. And then it swung back in the other direction and came down to call it the 15000 ballpark. And that was probably oversold on the other end. Now it sits somewhere between those two. But again, that is the tendency for assets in the market, investable assets is to swing towards extremes. So what you don't want to do is be caught in a short-term trade, which looks really sexy as things swing towards the extremes like Bitcoin in 2021. Interesting data point on Bitcoin. JP Morgan just put out some studies on the demographics of Bitcoin. They can tell when people are moving money into certain accounts that are very heavily apt to be bought into crypto, into crypto accounts, essentially. Mm -hmm. And when people moved money into crypto accounts in the highest magnitude was when Bitcoin traded at $68,789. So people bought it at its absolute peak. And that's not anything new. That's what happens in the stock market as well. It's just more amplified in a bigger volatile asset class like Bitcoin. Right. And I should say not a bigger asset class, a more volatile asset class like Bitcoin. 
Exactly. And when things are super volatile, people get scared. You know, there's there gets scarcity in the market and they're like, oh, I need to invest now. I need to get it now. And then it causes, you know, you're trapped in a situation where you're stuck at 60,000 invested in Bitcoin and it's crashed. That, to That's psychological <laughs> as well. So like if you go back to Darwinian days and evolution, it's the mentality as human beings is fight or flight. Those are your two options when things get scared. You can't fight the market, right? But you can certainly sell out of the market, which is the flight aspect of it. So when mm-hmm. things get tough, the brain says, okay, fight or flight, fight or flight. If I can't fight, I have to flight. And that means selling out of the market. And that is hardwired into our brains. So as humans, innately, we aren't good investors. And the numbers show it time and time again. So another JP Morgan stat. So JP Morgan has what they call their guide to the markets. It gives a ton of different data points as to investment, valuations, whatever. One of the really good ones that a layman understands really well is 20-year performance. So it shows at different asset classes over the past 20 years and how they've done per year. So 20 years in the S&P 500, it's annualized 9.5% return over the past 20 years, which is rock star numbers. And if you look at social media, everyone says, hey, buy the S&P 500, you're good. The average investor has returned 3.9% over that past 20-year period of time. 9.5% of the S&P 500, 3.9% on the average investor's returns. And that goes to show you that that flight or flight mentality certainly takes place and people buy at the wrong time. When it's sexy and attractive, when their cab driver is telling them they know how to invest and they're selling at the wrong time at the bottom in 2022. And why is that? Do you think people don't choose to take the safer route in investing in the S&P 500 compared to you know all these cryptocurrencies? I, I, I keep going back to Warren Buffett here, so pardon me. But nonetheless, Warren Buffett had a phenomenal line. Jeff Bezos was sitting on a stage with him. Jeff Bezos, obviously, Amazon founder, one of the richest people in the world. He said, Warren, you're so successful. And Warren had just gone through his investing process and talked about it being super boring. And he goes, anyway, why don't people invest just like you? And Warren Buffett had one of the greatest lines of all time. He goes, because no one wants to get rich slowly. Mm. He said, I didn't get rich fast. Warren Buffett is not the greatest investor of all time from a returns production standpoint. He's annualized about 20% over his career. There's a guy named Phil, I'm sorry, Jim Simons, who's annualized 66% return. Yet Warren Buffett's worth almost 10 times as much, more than 10 times as much as Jim Simons. Why is that? Because Warren Buffett's been investing for literally 70 years, more than 70 years. He's 92 years old now. He started investing when he was like 10. So if you can compound 20%, which is an obnoxious rate, no one can do that. He's, he, you know, he's a god for that reason. But with that, if you can compound 20% return over 70 years, Jim Simons compounded 66% over 25 years. And he's worth a fraction as much as Warren Buffett. So again, it's time in the game that allows that law of compounding interest to make you money over time. Exactly. And everybody wants these quick, get, get rich, quick schemes. They, you know, that's what's promoted on social media nowadays. That's what yep. people Not for my social media to. account. Yeah, not no, 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 not, not you. I'm talking about the majority, you know, TikTok, yeah. Instagram, all these short form content videos. Everyone wants to figure out, oh, can I start a dropshipping business? Can I, can I do this? Can I do this? How can I get rich, you know, next month, tomorrow? And that's just, that's just not how it works. But conversely, like, can you describe a investment that didn't go as planned and like lessons you learned from that experience? Yeah, I'm no longer a single stock investor. Now, we, we run ETFs, so that's what my company does, and we can get into that if you want. We don't have to. Um, so inside of our ETFs, we have stocks, bonds, commodities, and real estate, all packaged within one single ETF. So essentially what we've done is taken that portfolio that we used to build for someone that has 50 or or $100 million 
and brought the exact same portfolio. Now it's available for $10 on any platform like Robinhood, Charles Schwab, But so there are individual stocks in there. But personally, outside of that, I do not invest in individual stocks. So one of the things that I was incorrectly taught, I'll say, at the beginning of my career is buy what you know. And so I'm a redneck, right? I grew up in a one red light town. So what I knew was Arctic Cat Stock, which is a snowmobile company. And so at the time, I could see that trends were phasing up when it came to snowmobile purchases. And that was the large driver of their returns. There's three main manufacturers of snowmobiles, Arctic Cat, Skidoo, and Polaris. I picked Arctic Cat because I like Arctic Cat. There wasn't much more to it than that. And I knew <laughs> that snowmobile sales were going up. Well, Arctic Cat mm-hmm. snow- sales plummeted, plummeted and the stock got absolutely smoked and Skidoo and Polaris skyrocketed. And I'm like, God, you know, this Murphy's Law, whichever one you choose goes wrong. And, 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 and again, maybe there was more diligence that I should have done. And I did dig into the balance sheet some and see some trends, et cetera. But I just wasn't right. I wasn't ready to be an individual stock investor. And I think, honestly, almost nobody, nobody outside of professionals should be buying individual stocks. I love it. I love it. And talk a little bit more about your ETF. Talk a little bit more about that and how yep. you got started with that. Yep. So again, so my background goes back to Wall Street. So I spent 10 years running around the country working with the richest of the rich, literally the richest of the rich. And we would design portfolios for them. And I grew up in a little redneck town in upstate New York in the Catskill Mountains. And I have friends that had, you know, $1,000, $5,000 up to, you know, $250,000. Essentially, financial advisors really don't target anyone that has less than $250,000 of investable assets. So let me mm-hmm. let me tell you how the model of how financial advisors make money. And I'll use round numbers, so I'll use $100,000. So if you go to a financial advisor, you have $100,000. They generally charge a 1% fee on that. So at the end of the day, that $100,000 generates $1,000 worth of revenue for the financial advisor. They have to meet with you four times a year, and they also have to do a ton of work on the front end to convince you to bring them your business. So they make $1,000, then they split that with their firm. So if they work for Morgan Stanley, Merrill Lynch, UBS, whatever it is, they give them 50% of that. That advisor's now made $500 off of this. That, That revenue generating model does not work. So they have to go deeper in the ocean and find rich people. And they all target the rich people. Therefore, leaving the folks that have $250,000 or less out high and dry. And it's because they know how to invest themselves? No, absolutely not. They're probably honestly less prepared to invest for themselves than wealthy people are just by nature of – and we won't go down that. But anyway, you get what I'm saying. So at the end of the day, all of my buddies were like, hey, Taylor, like, can you help me invest, man? Can you help me invest? Like, You know what you're doing. I need help. I don't know what I'm doing. I have four kids. I chase them around the weekends. The last thing I want to do is research investments. that's not what I'm going to do. And, you know, time and time again, I was like, okay, well, how do I do this? And at the end of the day, my partner and I, who also happens to be my brother from the same one red light town said, this is exactly what we do. Let's package it inside of one ETF and bring it to market and say, Hey, purchase this on Robinhood, purchase this on Charles Schwab. And the fee on it is 0.34%. So it's super low Hmm. fee. It doesn't cost much to do it. And it gives you that fully all-inclusive portfolio that super rich people have on any platform. And you can buy it at $10 a share. So you can buy as little as as – actually, it's a little less than 10 right now. Less than $10 you can start investing in an educated manner. 
That's great. And, you know, I wish the lower class, the middle class would really pay attention more to, you know, long term investing because that's, you know, it's just a place they really lack. But, you know, you said you went around uh, meeting all types of mega rich people. And what made you get the understanding that connections are important? That's what's going to take me further and launch me in my career. Yeah. So like one of the things that we had to do when it comes to launching this business is we had to raise money. So we had to raise money into life goal investments as a firm in order to launch the company because it's an expensive game to launch an ETF. And with that, all of those connections that we had made with those ultra-rich people came in handy because we said, hey, here's our idea. We want to create exactly the same thing you have because we built it for you, but we want to bring it to someone that has $1,000 to invest. And they're like, oh, that seems like a really good idea. We see the trends in investing are going away from you know, the traditional route and people are now doing it themselves. So they probably really need a solution like you're able to provide them. And so they said, Hey, we'll put some money behind you and bet on you guys and your ability to bring this to market, to give those folks the same investing experience that we had and improve everyone's lives at the end of the day. So the connections were, you know, hugely, hugely important because we needed that capital in order to raise and start the business to begin with. That's amazing. And, you know, you say you come from a small town. What gave you the inspiration to move to Wall Street and get involved with those people? Yeah. So uh, I guess a couple things on that note. Where I went to college was was very close proximity to Wall Street. So I went to college at Iona University, which is just outside of Manhattan. Um, the, the train line runs right through town. You can hop on the train and be in midtown Manhattan in 25 minutes. So the proximity to that was really nice because it gave you exposure. A lot of our professors, the adjunct professors, were Wall Street folks that would come out at night to teach mm-hmm. us and kind of give back is is what the the way they looked at this. So that was the exposure that I got firsthand from being just proximity to New York City, honestly. And so with that, I started to create some connections on Wall Street, et cetera, and that led to me getting a job there soon thereafter when I graduated. And then the nice thing also is like education, you know, I know education is a topic that is hotly debated right now. Is it worth it to get a college degree? One, I'll give you a statistic and you can take, get your own answer out of this. Forbes just wrote an article that the average bachelor's degree holder makes $2.8 million throughout their career. The average high school diploma owner or holder um, makes $1.6 million throughout their career. So, you know, do the math. Is, is it worth it? I would argue it certainly is. And my mother's a professor, so I certainly all got that ingrained in my head. But I guess where I'm going with this is the fact that when I got that job on Wall Street, they were also willing to pay for me to go back to school to get my master's degree. So that was mm-hmm. a free ride to a master's degree in finance, MBA in finance. And that was something I absolutely took advantage of immediately and started going back to school at night because, again, you don't know where your career is going to go. And you know, at some point down the line, maybe I want to be a professor you know, 30 years from now, and I'm going to need an MBA because they need that educational background. Right. And education is really important. And in today's, at least my generation, you know, we really try and push it to the side and, you know, try and act like college isn't all that. But in reality, it is, you know, it's the it's the safest route to go, like by far. Statistically speaking, it is easily the most safest route you could take in becoming a success, successful person, period. It, but it, it's an that, investment. It's an investment, right? So look at it no different than anything else. Like if I can make $2.8 million over my career versus $1.6 million over my career, am I willing to take on $50,000 worth of debt? The answer to that is a simple one to me, and the answer is yes. 
But again, exactly. to each his own, and there are always anecdotal stories. The most successful person, there's one big business in our town. Uh, I grew up in a li- literally a one red light town. There's one successful, like ultra successful person. He's got a high school education. That's it. And he barely made it through high school. So there are certainly anomalies, but I like numbers. I like data. And the data says that education certainly puts you in a better position to make money over time. Amazing. And also with the education, do you think it's the construction of school of like, you have to be here at this specific time? Because a lot of people, you know, they have great ideas, but they don't take action. They're they're lazy. You know, they can think of ideas all day, but they just don't do anything. School kind of forces you, you have to go to class, you have to go get this SAT done. Do you think school kind of helps you with that discipline? So I heard a really good analogy when it comes to thinking about school and education. Um, and, and the kid, it was actually a social media, uh, analogy that I saw. And there was someone asking his professor, when am I ever going to use calculus? Like, I don't understand this. Like I'm barely getting by here, but I know I'm never going to use this at the end of the day. And he goes, he turns and says to the kid, all right, think about this. An NFL football player, do they lift weights? And the kid's like, yeah, get stronger. And he's like, yeah, do they lift weights during the game? Is that what makes them successful in the game? And the kid's like, no. He's like, you're training your brain to grasp Uh. concepts and ideas that then can correlate in the business world on the other end. He goes, NFL players aren't out there bench pressing to score a touchdown. But at the end of the day, they're training their bodies, they're training their minds to create that success over time. Exactly. And with you that with you saying that, like, what are some ways you stay up to date with the latest market news and and developments in the in your market? Well, I should be watching right now because Fed Chairman Jerome Powell is actually testifying to the Senate as we speak, um, which is important because we have to know what his thoughts are. So the, the, the Federal Reserve is in charge of keeping inflation under control, or I should better say getting inflation under control because it's out of control right now. Um, and what he says is going to dictate kind of how the market reacts to movements and interest rates. And so uh, I guess I'm kind of beating around the bush here. At the end of the day, all day, every day, what I'm doing is looking at different news outlets as to what's going on in the markets at large, measuring numbers, looking at data, and determining from there where we want to invest our portfolios. Because at the end of the day, people that are putting their monies in our ETFs are entrusting us to make the best decisions on their behalf. If I'm being lazy and not paying attention to what's going on in the market during a week, who knows what could be happening inside the portfolio? That's not what they've paid us to do. And so it's an all-day, everyday event. Even on the weekends, you have to be reading Barron's or the Wall Street Journal or whatever it is to keep track of what's coming up next in the market. So you know, if you read Barron's this weekend, you would know that today the Jerome Powell is going to speak to the Senate and tell us what his thoughts on the direction of the economy are and how he's going to fight inflation. You would know that consumer credit came out yesterday telling us how much credit card debt consumers are taking on in the United States. You would know that jobs data is coming out on Friday that's going to tell us the direction of the economy in general. All of this stuff is stuff that you have to stay up on every single day. Amazing. And you mentioned something about the Federal Reserve. Can you tell people a little bit more about the Federal Reserve and really just how money works? Because I don't think a lot of people have a full understanding of where money even comes from. Yep. So the Federal Reserve has two roles. It's called a dual mandate. One is price stability, and that's the controlling of inflation. And the other is full employment. And they look at the unemployment rate in order to get us there. So right now, one of their two things are under control. Unemployment is super low, so they're doing a good job there. But on the other side, inflation's out of control. 
And so that's what their focal point is right now is how do we get inflation back under control? And what the Fed does is they move around interest rates. And what interest rates do is they change things like mortgage rates. So as interest rates go up, mortgage rates go up and therefore people can't afford to buy as many houses. It also changed things like credit card debt. As interest rates go up, so does the cost of credit card debt. Credit card debt right now runs at about a 25% interest rate, which is absolutely absurd. So I guess what I'm getting is as they raise interest rates, it makes people less likely to spend money. And when people are less likely to spend money because credit card debt is exorbitantly expensive, what it does on the other end is slows down our economy. And so when the economy slows down, that then feeds through to a lower inflationary number. Now, the tough part about it, this is, is the other part of their mandate is unemployment. And what they're saying right now is we're willing to raise interest rates in order to bring down inflation, all the while knowing that this is going to increase our unemployment rate. And it's a really tough thing for people to grasp. They need to do this to create price stability and create inflation that's not out of control. But it is absolutely going to put people out of work. And it's looking at it and saying, why the hell would they want to put people out of work? Well, at the end of the day, the broader good of society benefits more from not having inflation run out of control. And some people, on the other hand, obviously have to become unemployed because of this. And if you rewind back to the 1970s, Inflation got really out of control and we failed to control it twice. So in the 70s, there was three Fed chairmen. So the first one came in, inflation was running up, he raised interest rates and inflation kind of leveled off. And he said, okay, we're good. We don't have to raise interest rates anymore. And what happened? Inflation took back hold and took off again. They fired him, brought in the next one. Same exact thing happened. And the third one was a guy named Paul Volcker. Paul Volcker took interest rates to 19, 1.9%. Currently, we're bitching about 5% interest rates. They were at 19% back in in the 1970s. So that is what we have to face. We cannot have inflation get out of control because if it does, we're going to have to take interest rates to an exorbitant level. And what that does is lock up the economy and forces us into a recession. Amazing. And let's not put too much fear in people's hearts. Let's let's talk about the positivities of the market and the futures of the market. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Over time, investing is what makes people wealthy. And if you sit in a savings account at a bank yielding 0.01%, inflation's at 6.4% right now, you are getting a negative 6.4% return on your purchasing power every single year. That is what inflation does to people over time. At the end of the day, on the other side, investing over the long term has been what makes people health wealthy. So, you know, you look at long-term averages of the S&P 500 for example. The long-term average is right around 9%. That is how you get rich over time. An easy way to look at what 9% actually means is what they call the rule of 72. So, the rule of 72 is a very good rule of thumb when it comes to investing. You take 72 and you divide it by the rate of return that you get. So, if you get a 9% rate of return, 72 divided by nine equals eight. Your money will double every eight years. That is the rule Mm. of 72. It tells you how long it takes your money to double. So in the S&P 500 at 9% over the past 100 years, every eight years, your money doubles. And when your money is doubling, that new money that now you have that you didn't have before is also doubling. And that's the power of compounding returns, getting returns not just on your initial investment, you're getting returns on your returns, on your returns, on your returns. Mm, that's amazing. That's really great advice. And 
if you could go back to being 16, like what would be some things you would do differently to build yourself up from an early age? Yeah. So I was a worker even as a kid. Like I was just that knucklehead Uh. that was always like, hey, what can I do to make a little bit of money? My family owned a blueberry farm. Like, I know it sounds ridiculous, but we own a blueberry farm. And so um, at five years old, you could pick blueberries and they would pay me 50 cents per pint at five years old. Now you're five years old, your attention spans, you know, tiny. So you can't pick that many. But by, by the time I was <laughs> 10 years old, I could pick 20 pints an hour. I was making $10 right. an hour. And what I did incorrectly is I let that sit and, and, and I'll blame my parents a little bit because they're not investors. They didn't know any different, but they let that money sit right there in a savings account. I wasn't spending the money because I, you know, I was a saver, not a spender, but I should have been investing that money. Imagine if I had $10,000, which at one point as a young kid, I had $10,000 in my bank account because again, I had just worked picking blueberries. And if we had invested that at the time, I would have doubled that probably two times since then. And that $10,000 would be $30,000 now. Whereas it just sat in a savings account and did nothing. I think the earlier you can educate your kids on getting them invested or just youth in general, younger cousins, younger brothers, whatever it is, wherever you are in your life, the earlier you can get people invested, if that money is not going to be, is not going to be spent, get it in the market, get it compounding returns over time. And listen, you aren't going to pick the bottom of the market. The timing of the market doesn't work. So just get the money in, close your eyes, let it go. Amazing. And would you suggest people to pay attention to people like Warren Buffett or would you suggest people to read books and educate? Because, you know, people have different paths of how they educate themselves. So what what do you suggest? Yeah, I think that Warren Buffett is is an anomaly, right? Um, the guy has a massive enterprise beneath him that helps him break down companies and determine what companies to buy over time. And so he invests in individual stocks and he actually outright buys a lot of companies as well and puts them in his portfolio. But that comes through a ton of diligence on the front end, a ton of pouring through data and understanding what the company looks like, the strength of the business, the weaknesses of the business, how he can help their weaknesses become strengths and propel them higher over time. I think very few people have that ability to do that. And therefore, to my point before, Braden, I don't think most people should be buying individual stocks. So um, – I, I like Warren Buffett. I love his his comments. As you can tell, I spit them out all the time. And over time, the moral of the story from Warren is invest. It's not necessarily buy individual stocks because most people don't have the ability to do that. Another place that I always recommend people look is a great book for the layman, for the everyday person about investing. It's written by Morgan Housel is the author. It's called The Psychology of Money. And Morgan doesn't necessarily teach you how to invest, what to buy. He doesn't do that at all. Instead, what he does is trains your brain, like weightlifting for an NFL player, trains your brain in all the things that it takes to become a good investor. And he does it in like 18 chapters. It's not a super long book. It's a super easy read because he takes real life stories and creates a lesson out of them. He's a phenomenal writer and it's by far the most relatable investing book that I've ever read. I advise everybody read it. It's The Psychology of Money by Morgan Housel. And I have no affiliation with Morgan. So he's not paying me to say this. He has no idea who I am. But I have given him a lot of sales because I've taught a lot of, I've, I've, I've told a lot of people to buy it. <laughs> no, that's amazing. Hey, I appreciate you. You've came on here and provided so much great value. What's the best way that people can reach out to you? Yeah. So I would say, first of all, Every single day, I'm putting out stuff on Instagram on, and on TikTok. 
Our handle there is at Life Goal Investments. And all we're doing there is not speaking about Life Goal. We're educating people about what's going on in the market, what's going on in the economy. Like I just told you, Jerome Powell is testifying in front of the Senate right now. I'll break down what he says in layman's terms so you and I can understand it and all of our friends can understand it and tell you what that's going to do to the market, what I think that's going to do to the market moving forward. So it's just a daily 60-second clip as to what's going on in the market, what's driving things, and then just general psychology about money, investing, et cetera. That's what we do there. So follow us on Instagram and on TikTok at Life Goal Investments. And be careful. There's a ton of fake accounts out there that are impersonating and are going to be trying to sell you some scam crypto thing at Life Goal Investments. Awesome. And yeah, we'll be sure to put all your links in the description and make sure we'll get the right links, not no scammers. But um, it was a great podcast and uh, we'll see you guys next time on the Mastermind Podcast. Peace. Yo, that was amazing. I'm not going to lie.